I have a friend who decided he was going to write one song per day for an entire year. He's a hip-hop artist. And at first, when that thought came to him, he was like, man, I don't even know if it's possible, but I, but I got to try. So he got up at 4.30 every morning for a year and wrote songs. He blew the one song a day thing out of the water. There was a day when he wrote 10 songs. So I sat down with this man and I said, I'm kind of obsessed with the creative process. I need to understand what's going on with you. What did you learn? And some of the fruit of that's going to get into a sermon at a later date called Showing Up. And the idea with showing up is inspiration rewards the disciplined. You can't create inspiration. But you can show up and be present and available and listening when it hits. Inspiration is a frustrating thing. Sometimes, you know, you're in the car and then like a song comes or a poem comes or an idea comes. And you're like, oh my word, I don't have pen and paper. You know, and I heard about Tom Waits saying to what he would perceive of as the creative spirit. Because, you know, the secular idea that you're a creative genius is a huge crushing burden on creative people. The last 400 years of Western civilization have kind of been a disaster that have caused a lot of alcoholism, despair, depression, and struggles for artists. Before that, we thought it was God. Now we think it's us, and we bear all the burden for it. Does that make any sense? Before that, we said, oh, the Spirit moved, and then I, I paid attention, and I listened. I became a servant now it's like, what do I need to do to be creative? I'm a genius. You know, the word genius, actually, it was the, the way the Romans talked about the spirit that gave inspiration. They wouldn't say you are a genius. They would say you had a genius. Interesting, right? They were more right than we are. Post-enlightenment, when we started to think there's no God, there's no spirits, all there is is people made of flesh and blood and brains. Now, all of a sudden, if somebody produces something incredible, we go, aren't they something special? And then they stand back and go, oh, no. My best days are behind me. How will I ever top that? And then they show up and there's nothing. That's not a very fun way to live. So I sat down with my friend and I said, what'd you learn after a year of getting up at 4.30 every morning and writing a hip-hop song? He said, I learned, Tim, that writer's block is a lie. I expected it because everyone talks about writer's block. So I processed that. Of course, my instinct was to push back hard. I processed that for a while. Finally, the next day, I think I came back to him and I said, instead of every day for a year, try every day for 10 years and come back and talk to me about writer's block. And instead of you get to talk about whatever you want, try it a specific group of people who are on a specific journey and in a specific place. Because the issue at some point is not, do I have something to say? Is do I want to say anything at all? Does that make any sense? Ten years from now, will you still be all into the idea of getting up every morning and writing a hip-hop song? Well, after eight years of preaching, the first few years of preaching for me don't worry, we're going to come around to application to everyone else. It's not like a little Tim journal entry this morning. But after eight years of preaching, like I noticed the first two or three years were just like pent up, a decade's worth of pent up stuff that I had learned and had nowhere to, no one to tell. 
It's like 10 years of mail sitting in my van, and I'm drowning in mail going, oh my word, finally, there's some place to offload this. But eight years in, one morning I woke up and said, okay, Lord, I'd learned to trust my heart. That's the place where the Holy Spirit talks to me about what he wants to say. He told me a long time ago, when I say, what am I supposed to preach? He says to me, what do you have in here that you want to say? And then usually there'd be some prophetic person in the house would confirm that, like, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit said to them, and they didn't know it. And so for me, that became like a track record of going, okay, my heart, I don't hear a voice that says, preach on this thing. But literally, the Lord said, what's coming up inside of you that you feel like you have to talk about? And just trust that. But after eight years, one day, I got up, and there was nothing. Nothing. Now, that had happened before, but every time that it ever happened before, we got snowed out, or worship went long, or sharing went long, or I forgot that I had scheduled someone else to preach. Yes, I know. And so I showed up thinking all week I was struggling, going, what's wrong with me? Oh, maybe I'm not in love with Jesus anymore. Oh, my goodness. And then I'd show up. The service would happen the way the service happens, and I'd go, oh, the reason I had nothing to say was because I wasn't going to talk in the first place, and he already knew that. So here I am diagnosing myself as a broken soul because I'm actually in touch. But one day this happens, so I muscle through because I know my process. I also know, and maybe you'll know this, that the artist's process is this is awesome, first step. Oh my goodness, this is going to be so amazing. We're going to build this thing. It's going to be so much fun. It's so beautiful. I can see at the end from the beginning. We're going to do this stuff. This is awesome. Number two, this is garbage. You start out and you're like, I got nothing. Oh my word. Raw materials is all I have. Nothing. Oh my goodness, this is terrible. Step three, I'm garbage. Funny, it's a funny step, but it's always it's a part of the process. I'm garbage. Number one, this is awesome. Number two, this is garbage. Number three, I'm garbage. I'm a failure. Oh my goodness, I'm going to fail. Everything's bad. Step three, muscle through it. This is okay. I guess this is okay. Step four, this is awesome. Wait, what am I on? Five? Whatever. You know which one I'm on. I don't know what I'm talking about. This is awesome. This is garbage. I'm garbage. This is okay. This is awesome. So for those two reasons, even though eight years in, I muscled through because I know how this process works. You show up, you felt inadequate, and Holy Spirit shows up and it's amazing. Or you find out, oh, you weren't going to do it anyway. But this morning's different. This morning, all I had was a meditation on playing the rests. That silence is a musical form. That when the conductor is building something because he's not interested in the individual musician's performance, right? A conductor's not sitting back going, how can I show off how great the cello is? He doesn't care how good you are. He just wants you to be good enough to convey the feeling in concert with the group, right? And a lot of the time, he has you not play at all or play very quietly. Then he'll have you come in. And what you don't play is equally as important as what you do play. So because I was experiencing just a calm, waveless pond in my soul, God, what are you saying to me? What do you want to say to the church? Blank. Nothing. And not only nothing, but I couldn't even get my panic, my deadline panic, high enough to care. You know what I'm talking about, procrastinators. If you're, a procrast if you're not a procrastinator, the idea of waiting for deadline panic makes you almost angry. 
But if you are a procrastinator, the idea of working ahead is almost like saying you're going to work without creative spark. You're going to just say a bunch of stuff from your head out of grit. Come on, you got to let it simmer and stew. And then at the last second, get it out in one cohesive burst. Otherwise, it's like, it's like coming together in pieces that aren't like even on the same stage of development. It's weird. But I couldn't even get my deadline panic to motivate me to care. I had no desire to talk to the church. I thought, what's wrong with me? But I'd stand in front of you, I'd look at you, and I'd feel love for you. Lay my hand on you and pray for you, and the Holy Spirit's flowing. Singing songs to Jesus, and I'm weeping with his beauty. Sitting at home feeling great about the Lord. But when it comes to the topic of do I have something to say, nothing. And I'm more of a prophetic teacher than I am a teaching prophet, if you could flip, you know what I mean? And so for me, a sermon is not a lecture. A sermon is an emotional, spiritual burden that I get, and I, it's like I get sick with it or pregnant with it or I don't know, whatever metaphor you like to use. I, I was listening to NPR, and this guy was mixing metaphors. He's like, it germinates until it gives birth. And I'm like, that's a bot- botanical metaphor and a biological metaphor. Any other metaphors you want to mix in there? And sure enough, within a few moments, he had mixed a couple other metaphors. And I was like, son. But I get a burden. For me, this is what preaching is. You get a burden from the Lord, and if when I'm done, the burden hasn't lifted, then I know it hasn't transferred. Other people can be like, that was a great sermon, but if it's still on me, something didn't come through that needed to happen. And I'm not evaluating what I said. I'm evaluating what happened in the Spirit. Totally different things. And I'm not measuring you based on what I see around you. It's something inside. I could do it with my eyes, with my, I could do it with my blindfolded. That didn't make sense. So this morning I preached anyway because of what I said earlier about like the process that I'm aware of. So I pressed through because it's never failed me before. During the sermon, I don't even want to be there. No pleasure in it, no drive in it, just calm. Do you understand how terrifying that is? No, you don't. Okay, that's fine. I'm a preacher. You're not like y'all are like, I'm not usually there. As soon as the sermon was over, some people came up to me and they're like, that was a great word, brother. Better than usual. I didn't take that as an insult. People are hilarious anyway. Johnny Mills used to say, if you can't think of something nice to say, great scriptures. Let's compliment the Bible if you can't compliment the preacher. The word is true. Amen, brother. But it was, oh, great sermon, brother. Even better than usual. And I said, no, it wasn't. It was illegal and disobedient. And I instantly knew that I was supposed to take a month off. I already had an intuition that I was supposed to take a month off of preaching and be silent. Because when your soul is silent, what should you be doing? Yeah, you should be silent too. Like if your soul's silent and you're talking, something's motiv- your motivations are probably skewed. So there's this tree in the yard. I have this Chinese maple in the front yard, and I love the Chinese maple. Beautiful Japanese. That feels like I was accidentally racist right there. I love you, Japanese people and Chinese people. Thank you. Sorry. Some sort of maple that's red, and I didn't want to mow it over because it was so cute and wonderful, and I love that tree so much, so I put it in a pot to save it. 
And then I was like, you know what I should do? Because it started to get cold outside and leaves started falling off of trees. And I was like, oh, my precious baby Twee, he going to be ouchy. We got to save him. So I was like, I'm going to take him inside. Maybe, then I was like, maybe I'll make him into a bonsai tree. I'll put him in a pot. He'll stay small and he'll be amazing. He'll be like my little cute bonsai tree. We can give him a name. We could put little Christmas lights on him. Anyone else think that sounds amazing? A little bonsai tree? That sounds like so much fun to me. Oh, he's so awesome. So then I Google this because I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do him a favor. I'm going to protect him from the harshness of winter because he's so baby. He a baby. So this is what I research and find out. If I do this, it will grow for three years really aggressively and then die because the tree is designed to need dormancy. The tree is designed to need a season where it pulls all of its sap out of its branches, stores it down in its roots, and looks like it is dead. The tree is designed to need a harsh season to send it inward and underneath itself. And if it doesn't get time not producing, it will end up dying altogether. And I thought... I was going to help little tree. Oh, little tree. There have been other times when I've tried to help people I loved by preserving them from hard things the Lord designed for them to do. And there's been times I've tried to save myself from doing hard things I was designed to do, which would save me. Anyone else relate to that? And so here's the secret of the tree. Sometimes when you're trying to figure out what's wrong with you and you say, have I lost my love? Have I lost my faith? Have I lost my passion? Where's the joy gone? What's going on with this season I'm in? The tree, the little maple, whatever it was, the samurai maple. Can we say that? Is it a samurai maple? Give it a little thord. The tree is telling us it's not dead, it's dormant. And it needs to go dormant. The secret of the tree is if you don't let yourself go dormant in rhythms of work and rest, you will burn yourself out. You will do damage. It's like driving a car above red lines in the RPMs. You can do it for a minute. You can do it for a little bit. But if you have a pattern of pushing your car into the red line and you say, it should be able to handle it. I know what I'm doing. You will do damage. We are not always the best at understanding our limitations. So there's a YouTuber that I love. His name is Vegetable Police. First he started out, he had like ulcerative colitis, and he had to quit his job as a window cleaner, and all he could do was lay at home in pain. Then he figured out, like, he couldn't eat anything. Like, disease to the point where he was just in constant pain. He ended up on welfare, and the only thing he figured out eventually was he, he became a, a vegan, not, not an ethical vegan. He became a, I'm going to die if I don't vegan. And he's gone on this crazy journey. And uh, then he got into fitness at one point. He read a book called Convict Conditioning. It's an exercise regimen for people in jail who don't need weights. It's just all push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, and different things. And it, it culminates in one-armed uh, push-ups and pull-ups and different things that are pretty intense. And, but instead of following the book... He just jumped in and worked out as hard as he could every day. 
And at first, he was making big gains. Like, he's building muscle, he's losing fat, he's, he's just, he's working it. And all of a sudden, he plateaus, and he's like, I don't understand what I'm doing wrong. I'm work, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm not gaining. Like, what's wrong? So he goes back and he reads the book, Convict Conditioning, a little more carefully, and the guy says, only work one muscle group per week and only work out three times a week. Otherwise, your body will spend its energy trying to give you endurance rather than strength because it has limited resources. And if you want to build, you have to build recovery time, ample recovery time into your schedule. So he did that. That felt so wrong to him. He's like, let me get, let me get this straight. If I work less hard, I'm going to gain more? That sounds backwards. But he did it. Suddenly, he started breaking his records in every department. If you watch him, he's funny. He, like, stands on his head against the wall. He was in, like, the Bangkok air- airport in Thailand, and he's, like, standing against the wall on his head and, like, doing push-ups like that. I'm like, what kind of a person sets a camera on a tripod on the ground in an airport? I'll tell you what kind of person. A YouTuber. Yes, indeedy. Um, Should I throw in some scripture in here to make this feel legal? All right. Let me throw in some scripture here before I get back to all my little stories. In Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, On the seventh day, God finished his work of creation, so he rested from his work. Verse 3 of Genesis 2, And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Listen to this. God rested... And the fact that he took a break was so special to him that he then commemorated that day as sacred forever because it was a day when he rested. That's interesting. Work is sacred, which is what we've been talking about in this whole Soul of the Artist series. Our sacred calling, secrets of productivity and lining up with our design. We're not going to be happy if we're not doing the thing in the world we were designed to do. Work is sacred. But for the work to be healthy and sustainable, it has to be in a rhythm with times of rest and recovery. And then Exodus 20. You maybe know this one. It's out of the Ten Commandments. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You've got six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest. Notice that, of rest. So for you, if like gathering the kids in the car and getting everyone's socks on their feet and like managing the insanity that is family life, to bring your mobile carnival up in here and restrain them for a brief moment before it bursts out into everyone crying for video games on Sunday afternoon, if that for you is not restful, my question to you is when is your day of rest? Because Sunday surely isn't it. And God, would, God has designed you to need rest and recovery. And mom and Carrie's like, then why didn't he design babies to sleep? <laughs> Mark chapter 2, on the Sabbath day, Jesus is walking through some grain fields and his disciples begin breaking the heads of grain and eating them. But the Pharisees are all offended and they say, why are they breaking the law? And Jesus basically says, you remember when David and his companions went into the temple and, or, and, and they ate the sacred bread, which was a violation of the law, But it was okay, that's an interesting statement, because, y'all know the next sentence? The Sabbath was not, let me flip it, I did it wrong. Man was not what? Man was not made for the Sabbath, 
but the Sabbath was made for man. In other words, this is not legalism we're after. This is lining up with design. This is for our benefit. Work is sacred and rest in rhythms of work and rest are sacred. Luke 5.16 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. I love that. That, that, has, that has been fascinating me for, well, since for 21 years, I guess. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Why? Because he should? No, because it's, he's designed to need it. He's designed to need times of rest and recovery. And there's more I want to say about that. That's, all right, there, now it's legal. Now what I'm talking about is legal. It's been duly established. There's a quote from Abraham Heschel that says, if a, man, if a man works with his mind, he'll Sabbath with his hands. But if a man works with his hands, he will Sabbath with his mind. You knew that was coming, and I had to still say it out loud. Now, of course, he doesn't mean males. He means humans. If a person's work is a, a writer, maybe for fun, they shouldn't blog about stuff. If a person's a farmer, maybe on their day off, don't ask them to help you in the garden. Four, four observations about Heschel's quote about Sabbath. Number one, Sabbath isn't passive. If a man works with his mind, he'll Sabbath with his hands and vice versa. What is he saying? You choose a different work to Sabbath. Now, I've said this before in here that what we call enjoyable work, we actually re-term play, but it's actually still just work. And what children are doing is called simulated work, but we call it what? Play. They're in the, they're in the sandbox doing excavation. They're with the Legos doing construction and so on and so forth. But it's simulated work. The only thing that makes it play is that we enjoy it, and it's recreational. In other words, we intuitively are aware that what this thing is that we are doing is filling us back up and getting us ready. So number one, my little observation about the quote, it's not passive. On your, this is what I was doing wrong. Luke 5.16, Jesus often went out to lonely places to pray. It doesn't say, Jesus took a day off and watched YouTube and felt like garbage. And it would say that if I was the one they were writing about. For so many years, my wife was like, you are so grumpy on, your mon on Monday. A preacher's life is like the whole world revolves around Sunday morning. Like, it's Monday and I'm already thinking about Sunday. And then that gets louder and more f central until Sunday morning when you say, Hey, Pastor, can I talk to you? The truth is, as much as I love you, I can't hardly even hear the words you're saying to me because this thing is about to happen, like a quarterback about to go into the game. Do you know what I mean? Like, doesn't mean he doesn't love his wife, but that's probably not the time when he's going to remember the shopping list she's just texted him. <laughs> no. That's when he puts on his headphones and listens to Metallica. That was a dated reference. So it's not passive. I, for so many years, was just crashing on my day off. But Luke 5.16 says Jesus actively pursued the Father on his day off. 
or in his spaces off. That's interesting. Actively pursued the Father. So number one, it's not passive. Number two, Sabbath is not legalism. I don't know if you've ever had this mindset of like, oh my word, I feel guilty for mowing my yard on Sunday, or I feel guilty for like going to a restaurant on Sunday, or I just feel guilty for having any fun on Sunday or washing a dish on Sunday. If, if you have experienced that, then shame off you in Jesus' name. You aren't under law. Christians are dead to the law. You're not regulated by the law. You're not led by the law. You're not under the law. Now, since you're free, you're able to observe the motivations in the heart behind the law and find the treasure of God's heart for you in them. You're able to mine the treasures of God's character revealed in the, in the commands instead of be bound to them in a judging way. So the question is not, oh, we should do this. How should we, you know, how should we do this? The question is, uh, why is this beneficial? So it's not legalism. Not passive, not legalism. Number three, it's not one size fits all. Notice he says, if your work is with your mind, you'll Sabbath with your hands. It's not one size fits all. What is Sabbath for you might be not Sabbath for me. Like, you want to stress me out, invite me to a party. Yeah, I said that out loud. Wow. You want to have fun? I want to have, when you have smaller numbers of people make me so much happier. Bigger numbers of people, I don't know, stresses me out. You know what I end up doing in a big group? I end up finding a small group to hang out with so we can finally get past. I, I'm not good at small talk. So, uh, nice weather we're having. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you, uh, you... And it doesn't even matter if something actually embarrassing happened. I'm embarrassed at the beginning of the interaction. Like, nothing has to go wrong. I'm already embarrassed. Just like, fight through, Tim. These people matter. Fight it. Fight through it. So it's not one size fits all. The thing that, that just is so restorative to you might be destructive to, the, to your good friend or your spouse or your kid or, or you know. And you can't understand. Why, what's wrong with them? Well, they're not you. And number four, it's, it's, it's pragmatic. It's results-driven. So you've got to experiment to figure out what, how you Sabbath best. And for me, what didn't work was passivity. In fact, uh, I'm at a stage where I don't even have an official day of the week where I Sabbath because I haven't figured out how to do it well yet. It causes me more stress, more frustration, more anger, more, dis- more despair than simply standing back and going, I don't know how to do that yet. And we're going to figure it out. But for now, I'm not going to risk my wife and kids' emotions for the sake of some legalistic agenda. How are we tracking? So there's a painter, or I'm sorry, there's a writer named Henry Miller. And when he was a kid, he was in art class. And the teacher said, Henry, you're terrible. Do us all a favor and stop. You're so bad that you would be doing the world a favor if you never painted again. I'm sure she wasn't that harsh, but that's how he remembers it. But he paints all the time. He says, I don't have one natural gifting at painting. Not one. I'm horrible at it. But I take so much joy in it. So when I'm stuck, when I can't write, when my reservoir is empty, I paint. I paint because I can't do anything anyway. And I might as well do something to occupy my hands and create space while I'm waiting for the reservoir to refill. I can't refill the reservoir. I don't even know how it works. 
but I know that as I paint, it slowly refills. Jason Upton told a story about this. He, he went to this spiritual retreat, and the speaker uh, was visually impaired, and when he came into the room, he was an older gentleman, when he came into the room, he kind of stumbled over a chair, and he's tripping over sound cables, and he can't find his microphone, and it was like five long, slow minutes of awkwardness where they were afraid that if they offered to help that they would somehow be like patronizing him. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, like we don't want to disrespect. He can do this. We don't want to let him feel like we're thinking he can't do this, but it went on and on. It was like five minutes of pain. Finally, out of breath, he sits down on the chair in front of the microphone and he's still breathing heavily, and he says, first words of the whole spiritual retreat, sometimes it just takes as long as it takes. You can fuss and fume and fight. You can go and strain and complain and whine. You can throw fits and blame yourself and blame other people. But your reservoir is going to take as long as it takes to refill. You can't make it refill. But you are obligated to rearrange your life so that it can. You don't have excuses for staying the same with an empty reservoir, even though you're not the one who can fill it. You're stressed out and burnt out and ticked off and sad and afraid and lonely and acting wrong and you have no reserves because you've been out running a, a wave of accumulated stress and toxicity. You may be doing the best you can do from now, but we are obligated to rearrange our lives in such a way that the reservoir can refill. St. Francis said, don't try to change the world. <laughs> change worlds. That blew my mind. That's what the long silence is for. I just like, that blew my mind. Don't chip away at trying to take a fallen, broken world and make it a little better. The whole point of Sabbath is to leave the world of pleasing, proving, performing. What's my other P? I'll think of it later. There's this whole thing we do where we don't know who we are until we achieve stuff. And if we haven't made the world a better place at the end of the day, that's our version of hell, which means Jesus is no longer the Savior. My productivity is. Jesus is no longer the gospel. How hard I work and what I achieve is. Something has gone so wrong. And Francis says, don't try to change the world. Change worlds. The point of Sabbath is to step out of the world that everything depends on me and what I do and what I produce and what I can live down. Stop running from that wave of accumulated hurts and lies and pain and things we're trying to outrun and prove that's not who we are. And let it catch you. Jesus in the wilderness is tempted with his deepest core issues. When you stop out running the wave, the wave will catch you. But the point of Sabbath 
is that as it catches you, the deep things in your heart that have been causing you not to work from a place of rest, not to work from a place of I'm loved, not to work from a place of it's finished, those things come up so that they can come out. I had a friend that found out that I took a sabbatical and he said, wow, hey buddy, can you give us some advice? What, what, what can we do on our sabbatical? I noticed you guys went camping and you guys went to Virginia and you did all this fun stuff. I saw the pictures online. It looked like you guys had a great time. I'm going to take a sabbatical. Do you have any advice for me? He's all happy and smiley. So I took my little pin and I popped his balloon of joy. I said, prepare. Prepare for the toxic wave you've been out running. You've been on active duty on a battlefield taking bullets for years. You've been being strong for others so that they don't bleed out on the field and you've been ignoring all the accumulated aches and pains and lies and wounds and rejections. And you're about to take a break, get to a place where there aren't bullets flying and suddenly you're going to discover anger is going to... This is what I told him. This maybe is not true for everyone, but it's what I told him. I said, be prepared for anger to come up. Be prepared for hurt to come up. (laughs) Be prepared for fear to come up. Be prepared for temptations you've not even been tempted with in 10 years to come up. Be prepared to never, ever want to go to a church ever again. Not preach, not pastor, attend. You're going to have to fight and win through those things. You think it's vacation time? You want advice for where to go to have fun? Son, I'm praying you make it out. Months go by and my wife says to me, uh, do they live in such and such state anymore? I said, yeah, why? I mean, as far as I know, well, they're in that state instead. Where do you get this information? Well, on Facebook. So I call my friend up and I say, hey, uh, what happened? Uh, you're in such and such state. He says, right. Well, we took a sabbatical and at the end of it, my wife said, you're going to leave the ministry or I'm going to leave you. I said, what are you doing? She said, well, she was a stay-at-home mom, homeschool stay-at-home mom from our entire marriage. Now she is a working mom, full-time career woman. And uh, I'm doing martial arts training with people. I'm loving that. I said, so-and-so, fill in the blank with his name. You were made. You were made to serve the church of Jesus. I know this. I think what you're doing is right. What you're doing is wise. The way you guys were living before wasn't sustainable or healthy. You've made wonderful, healthy changes, and I'm glad. But what are you guys going to do when your calling can't be resisted again any longer? Sure enough, within a few years, the church they attended asked him to be part-time, and then, of course, part-time grows into full-time. But you know what? I guarantee you they didn't do it the same way this time around. There was, there's things that happen when we take Sabbath We're so busy working in our life that we rarely take time to get away from the work of our life and gain perspective and work on the work instead of in the work. And if every time you gain perspective, you're like, oh no, I don't even know if I should keep going, praise God for that because that is your why trying to call to you to make sure you are doing this from heart and from faith and from calling. That you're not phoning it in that you're not existing, that you're not surviving, that you're thriving. You're made to thrive. Oh, here they are. Here's the peas. 
When we're out running the wave, we're performing, we're pleasing, we're producing, and we're proving. That's not how Jesus lived. Jesus lived out of the affection of the Father and out of the voice of the Father and out of the direction of the Father. He would go to the Father and say, hey, uh, I feel like my time here in Galilee is probably about up. And something would transpire in the spirit, in the secret place with no one around, and the disciples can't find him. And when they can find him, they go, hey, man, everyone's waiting for you back at the thing. And he goes, I'm not going there. The Lord just told me we're supposed to head out. My time here is done. Or it says that Jesus spent a night alone in prayer. And he comes out of this, and it says that's when he chose 12 specific people to come and live with him, travel with him, and be his inner circle. Because those were questions that he took to the Father for direction. It says that after John the Baptist died, he fought to get enough solitude. Of course, they chased him across the lake, and they ended up preaching the huge sermons to the crowds and multiplying the loaves and everything. But when they were dismissed, he sent the disciples away so he could be alone with the Father, which was his original intention. And it was after that that he then ends up walking on the water and scaring Peter. And they're like, it's a ghost, we're going to die. But Jesus got alone with the Father. See, because solitude... is about fellowship with God. We don't get alone to get alone. We get alone to be together with God. Rest is not passivity. We rest from this to be active in this over here. Listening, seeking, playing. And fasting is not even ceasing from eating. It's ceasing from eating food so that you can actively feast on truth. How are we doing? Is this too much, too fast? Interesting is Jesus said, you are the, I, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he also said, so apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you'll bear much fruit, okay, which is the opposite of what we think, which is we think as we work really, really hard for Jesus, we'll bear much fruit. And here's the thing that he knows. Apart from the Father, he can do nothing. He's not saying something different from us than what he's living in. If Jesus is the vine, the Father is the sap. I'm going to try to shorten up some of the rest of this. Um, how do we know when we have too much stress buildup going on in our lives? What are the signs of the wave accumulating in our lives? Dr. Sherry Borg-Carter says that there's three main areas where the accumulated stress of not living in these rhythms shows up. It shows up in physical and emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and feelings of ineffectiveness. I'm going to give a list for each of these. Signs of physical and emotional exhaustion. Just go ahead and close your eyes and listen to this and see if the shoe fits. Chronic fatigue. Insomnia forgetfulness, and impaired concentration. Physical symptoms like chest pain, palpitations, headaches, body feeling achy and sore all the time for no good reason. Increased illnesses, he said with his puffy voice. Loss of appetite, anxiety, depression, anger. The second was signs of cynicism, which is like loss of enjoyment of things you used to love. Pessimism. You think everything is going badly and it's not going to work. Isolation. I'm a burden. I'll just be alone. 
or people are a burden, I'll just be alone. And detachment, I feel safer, not connected. And then the third is the cynicism. I'm sorry, that was the second. The third is feelings of ineffectiveness, apathy and hopelessness, irritability and feeling unproductive and actually offering a poor performance. Years ago when I started out, I thought I should be able to do everything that the previous pastor did plus everything that the pastor I had from Kentucky did plus everything that I felt called to do. Because why not? I'm 29 or whatever I was. How old was I? I don't, it doesn't matter. I was like, we can do it. Let's do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revive. We'll get out the dang way and give me the microphone. So stupid. And uh, pretty quick, my wife was like, you know, you're always working and I'm super furious with you. And the elders were like, do you take a day off ever? Seems like you're always going. And I was like, I don't have time for that. Me and Jesus got work to do. You know, that's the interesting thing is the Holy Spirit doesn't come to empower you beyond the rhythms he created you for. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to empower you to not need sleep and food and friends and boundaries. Actually, he comes, and one of the things he likes to do is teach you those things, how to do those things, like Jesus did. So one of the elders, Lamar, came to me and sat down, and he said, Tim, I have a homework assignment for you. I want you to list everything you're doing on a piece of paper, everything you're doing. So I made this really long list. And he said, now I want you read through the list, and if it stresses you out, I want you to put a minus by it, and if it excites you, I want you to put a plus by, by it. And then I want you to systematically delegate every negative on this list that you can faithfully delegate without neglecting your duties. I want you to systematically delegate every single negative on this list to someone who would be energized by that activity. Genius. That was the best advice on this topic I've ever received. Changed my life. Permanently changed my life. I got off the school board and I got off other things. See, other people, it's like, school board excites them. Actually, meetings in general don't excite me. That's free. You can, you know, enough about that. So, I'm trying to figure out how to end. End with an emotional appeal and everyone weeping at the altar. <laughs> Here's nine things I've learned. Number one, find the stress and cut it out. Number two, find what fills your tank and do it every day as much as you can with discipline. Three, learn to say no to whatever isn't your main thing. Don't do anything out of obligation to anyone, ever. Don't do it. You kill yourself. Your life will ebb away. Exercise, number four. Number five, be with positive people. Number six, the path to God and the path to wholeness are related you can't have a sozo and not end up healthier. You can't have a worship service where you encounter Jesus and not end up healthier. The path to God and the path to wholeness are connected. Number seven, play. Everything is spiritual. Don't let religious people steal your joy or you will become like them. Number eight, always return to your biggest why and your clearest what. And number nine, don't compare what you can handle to what you think others can handle. You ain't them. You got to be you. Here's your questions. Do you Sabbath with your hands or with your mind? I'll email these questions to the church so you don't have to worry about remembering them. Number two, do you relate to the items that I said on the burnout symptoms? Which ones? Which ones did you relate to? When do you relate to them? Pay attention to that. 
What have you learned about arranging your life around healthy rhythms of work and rest? Number four, do you already know, just after hearing this talk, of some things that you're not supposed to be doing that you're doing? Please talk to somebody about that, because I know how people are. I know how I am. I'll keep right on doing it, because I don't want to fail somebody or renege on a commitment that I've made. You know what I'm saying? It's like I said I would, so I'm going to, even if it kills me. Are you sure that's wise, bro? Have you learned what it means to live from a place of rest? And then finally, seven, how do you, do you have, maybe this is a better way to put this, do you have someone who you trust to give you reliable feedback about your level of stress buildup? Because, you know, not everyone knows you well enough that you'll believe them. And not everyone who has an opinion has an opinion that should matter to you. Do you have someone reliable whose opinion you trust to give you feedback on how much stress they see you having built up? Go ahead and stand. Little kids, would you like to come up here and pray for these adults? If you know that something I've said today is for you, please come up and let these kids pray for you to have the grace of Jesus to rearrange your life. Here's your benediction. May the rest of the Father find you in the midst of the journey this week, wherever you are. May you sleep well. May you laugh. May you have good friends. And may you thrive in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and let these awesome kids pray for you.